0: So if you're listening to this episode around the time when it's being released, then you'll be listening to this right on the last day of Black History Month here in the United States. It should go without saying that Black history is American history, but we're going to say it anyway. And we really want to point out that it should not be confined to the shortest month of the year, but instead should be taught to our kids every day of the year. And it should be talked about by us as grown-ups by an equal amount.
1: Yes. And that said, it's also important, I think, to not just be teaching our kids about the part of Black history that are full of struggle, right? And in particular, I'm referring to the history of slavery and the civil rights movement. And if you've been following the news in Florida, I mean, people like Governor DeSantis are putting even teaching those parts of Black history into question. Like, really, is this the hill that we're going to die on? But it can't be just those parts of Black history. And to illustrate this a little bit, I want to ask you, Sarah, when you were growing up, do you remember what you learned about Black history and how you learned about Black history?
0: You know, I think it's a great question to reflect on that because I think it was exactly what you mentioned, slavery, the civil rights movement. And I really could have blocked out some aspects of childhood now because I'm focused on raising my own kids. But to me, it's like, I remember MLK Jr. I remember the Rosa Parks story, the civil rights movement. And some focus on slavery because I vaguely remember watching Gone with the Wind at some stage in my childhood. (laughs) And I know for sure we did not watch that at home. But I guess that's where I noticed the difference because I don't remember what we've been infusing into the elementary curriculum here nowadays for my kids and the generation. Like for our kids, when they were in elementary school, their teachers were doing this unit on inventors. And so as parents on the equity committee, we made sure to give teachers resources on Black inventors to infuse into that segment too. And, you know, they did a segment on NASA on space exploration. And we ensured that they had all the materials they needed to talk about human calculators and the fabulous resources, you know, that movie uh, Hidden Figures and that sort of stuff. So I can see just comparing my childhood education to my kids' childhood education, that it is wildly different. Because for me, it really was, like you mentioned, the civil rights period and not stuff like the Black people doing all the incredible things they've done as Americans throughout our history. So how about you?
1: Yeah, I will say that I think my experience growing up was really similar. I don't remember stories besides civil rights leaders as you know a focus of Black history, especially in elementary school. I will say in middle school, we watched Eyes on the Prize, which if you have not seen that as an adult, you really need to see it because it is possibly some of the most powerful depictions of not only the civil rights movement, but sort of the historical and systemic struggles that have faced Black people. And it really ties into systemic racism in a way that I couldn't understand before. But I think about Eyes on the Prize because it is so graphic in a lot of ways that I'm 100% sure there was parent pushback about this. I didn't hear anything about that because I was, again, in seventh grade. But that was a formative, a really formative experience for me. And it was has not escaped me that it was a Latino teacher And I think my only Latino teacher outside of Spanish teachers that I had, who was the one who showed that.
0: That's interesting. I'm nodding. And I just wrote down Eyes on the Prize because I did not watch it. I've not seen that. And I think I could watch that now with my kids, probably.
1: Yeah, I think so. So, you know, now that we've reminisced about our own sort of limited learnings around Black history, I think what we both talked about is exactly why we're bringing you this episode today, where we're gonna talk about the history behind America's favorite pastime, in other words, baseball, that you might not know and probably weren't taught about in schools. And we're going to be talking about it in a way that I've been talking about it with the elementary age students in my kids' school in a totally digestible way. Because yes, you can talk about this with kindergartners. Yes, you can use the materials and the way that I'm talking about this to talk with older kids as well, especially a couple of the books, which we will link to in the show notes. But I think the most important takeaway here is that Black history is more than slavery and the struggle to be free, because it is about the everyday moments, the history that encompasses all of us in our country and if we're not teaching our kids to see black people in these moments these everyday regular people moments then we're really not teaching them to see black people at all so let's get into the negro leagues as pitchers and catchers are reporting right now for spring training in major league baseball
0: welcome to the dear white women podcast the show that models and normalizes conversation about race and racism as we work to help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Okay, so I'm super excited to learn more about this, which is hugely telling because you know, folks, if you've listened, that I am not like a sports person. But I really think this application of discussing Black people doing amazing things and then also learning about History that we are not really, you know, have our eyes open to is really important. And I want to be able to talk with my own kids about it, share this with other parents and caregivers and storytellers, too. So you said we were going to talk about the Negro Leagues, and I'd love to start with some basic questions like, what were they? And as a follow up, why did there have to be a separate league?
1: So I love these questions. And actually the second question that you asked, why did there have to be a separate league was similar to something that I got asked from a third grader last week. And his actual question was, how did they know who was black and who was white to be put in those separate leagues? But, you know, which might sound a little bit different than your question, but I think you'll see why this question is linked. So in order to answer both of those questions, we need to talk a little bit about baseball history first. And I'm going to start with this book, We Are the Ship, which is a great book, especially for upper elementary and even middle school aged readers about the Negro Leagues. And this book starts out in the first inning because they label their chapters as innings. They say baseball was invented by a fellow named Abner Doubleday in Cooperstown, New York back in the mid-1800s. But as the book points out, the short answer is that no one really knows when it was actually invented. However, what we do know is by the mid-1860s, and remember, the Civil War ended, I mean, kind of, in 1865, most professional baseball teams only had white players. There were a number of Black players who did play, though, although, as noted, they weren't treated any better than most Black people in the country at the time. Truth is, those poor fellows were treated downright disgracefully. They were called just about every horrible name in the book and then some. Several teams wouldn't play another team if it had a Black person on the roster. And in some states, Black people weren't allowed to play at all. So despite that and some other poor treatment that we don't have the time to really get into because that could take up this whole episode, there were some amazing Black ball players who came out of that time period. But it didn't really matter because, again, white ball players didn't necessarily want to play with them. So by the late 1800s, Black people began to disappear from professional baseball teams and soon were gone from them altogether. So you're probably gonna ask, why did that happen? Get this, okay, so I saw it in your face, right? So get this, there was no written rule that prohibited Black people from playing professional baseball, but somehow, I'm gonna put somehow in heavy air quotes, after about 1887, no professional baseball team was hiring any Black players. And it came to light that all of the white owners had gotten together secretly and made a, quote, gentleman's agreement to not only not hire black ball players, but also to fire the ones who were already on their teams. And they kept this agreement up for nearly 60 years, six zero years, right? That's how deep racism went and still goes, by the way.
0: I'm shaking my head right now. Wow.
1: Right. So I think I answered your second question first, right? Because- Black ball players being shut out of white leagues had to form their own. But let's go back to the first for a second. Black ball players still wanted to play ball and had a lot of talent, right? So they formed their own professional teams and their own leagues. All right. So we're still in the late 1800s at this point. So there were some false starts, but as in the early 1900s, now there were many black baseball teams all over the Northeast and the South. And after the great migration of Black people from Southern to Northern states in the 1920s, Black baseball began to grow. But leagues would kind of start and stop because they didn't have the money or the leadership to stay in business. Because let's remember, professional baseball was white and funded. Negro League or Black baseball was you know, basically a business in and of itself, right? Because they had to come up with the money. They had to figure out how to organize. And this kind of the stopping and starting and disorganization all changed with Rube Foster. And who was Rube Foster? You're probably going to ask. He was an old time trick pitcher who had come from the Texas leagues and ended up in the Leland Giants in Chicago, where he was both a player and the manager. Sounds different than today's baseball. But did you know at that time, managers almost always played because the owners couldn't afford to pay someone just to sit in the dugout. So new fact, right? So back to Rube, who was a great manager and really understood the strategy of not only building a baseball team's competitive levels, so he really made his team play at the highest level possible because of strategy, but he also understood how to draw a crowd as well. So soon the Leland Giants, who were later renamed the Chicago American Giants, were the strongest Black team in Chicago and the most famous independent team in the entire Midwest. Sometimes their games drew larger crowds than the local major league Cubs and White Sox. Wow. Yeah. So what set also set Rube apart was how he could organize the team. Unlike other Black teams back then who often didn't have matching equipment or uniforms and who often traveled from game to game in different cars or even hitch a ride literally on the back of someone's truck, Rube's team had new uniforms, bats and balls and rode to the game in fancy Pullman cars that Rube rented and hitched to the back of a train. Because remember, when you're asking yourself, well, wh- how did he have the money to do that when these other teams were kind of you know, tr- just getting by? He was a great manager, and because so many fans wanted to see his team play, he had the funds from ticket sales to be able to provide this for his team. Rube realized that he could do this on a bigger scale, right? He could do this for a whole league, as he wanted to, quote, create a league that would exhibit a professional level of play equal to or better than the majors. So when it came time to integrate professional baseball, Black players would be ready, And his dream was to put all of the Black players into Major League Baseball. There would be the National League and the American League, which we have to this day and was existing in Major League Baseball at the time, and the Negro League. There would be three leagues. He knew that if Black players wanted to play in a professional league, they'd have to organize it themselves, saying, we are the ship, all else the sea. And that's the title of the book, too, from that quote. All right. So on February 20th, 1920, Rube called all of the owners of Black baseball teams in the Midwest together to agree on a set of rules and name the new league, the Negro National League. And I want to pause here for a second, because when I talk to kids about this, we talk about the word Negro in the title of Negro Leagues, because we talk about how that was used to refer to Black people at the time and how we do not use that word to refer to Black people today. We use the word Black or we say African-American but we talk about how words, usage of words change over time. And that was really, really important because I've had some pushback when people are like, it's called the Negro Leagues. So I think it's really important and kids really understand this. So I think as clearly as you can explain that, they'll get it. All right, going back. So they've created, Rube created this new league, right, called the Negro National League. It started with eight teams. And he also took it upon himself to make sure the league kept going because he would personally help struggling teams out with a little cash. He'd help settle disputes between players and owners and basically made sure it was the best league possible. So he was basically like the commissioner of baseball in the Negro Leagues. His league was so successful that a group of white owners of independent black teams formed a rival league of their own called the Eastern Colored League. And again, we pause here and talk about the usage of the word colored at the time was used to refer to black people. We do not use that word anymore. Just another asterisk there. Just a few years after the Negro National League was formed, the pennant or division winners from each league met in a colored world series at the end of every season.
0: So much of this is fascinating. I really appreciated you taking those asterisk timeouts to remind us to explain these terms. And also for those of us who haven't heard that before or weren't familiar or or felt like, whoa, listen to what she just said. I think it's really, really powerful that you modeled that. And I think that's incredible that one person was able to do that. Because, again, keep in mind, this is way before the days of the Internet. Right. They are organizing maybe by telephone at this point. Right. There was no or U.S. Postal Service. I mean, this is incredible organization to start a league across a region and form, you know, World Series and all this sort of stuff. I think that's incredible. So also, though, let's like not forget that that was a lot of racism and segregation that had to inspire this to happen in the first place. And I think it's incredible that one man with a vision was able to make that kind of change. I still want to point out it was separate, though, from the white folks. And so I guess I'm all over this idea of like, how did the players feel about that? Right. With the formation of the Negro Leagues, did the players feel left out or did they feel really excited that they could play? And how do we know that now, what, 75 years or so after Major League Baseball has actually now been integrated?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's important to look at this part of the story through that era, right, Sarah, that you were talking about, because the timeline is so, so important, because this was the Jim Crow era, right, where clearly, as you stated, racism and segregation were not only rampant, but also, yes, it was totally legal at the time. But we also know that Black baseball players were really happy to play. Okay, so how do we know this is the question. And I think when we're looking at answering this question, understanding a little bit more about the conditions under which they played would be insightful when we think about how do we know this, right? So first of all, the conditions that Negro League baseball players were playing under at games, white fans would call them names and throw stuff at them on the field, and they weren't allowed to say a word. As one pitcher from the Negro League said, in some places we traveled to, we couldn't get a glass of water to drink, even if we had money to pay for it. And back then, water was free. They'd spend hours and days riding buses day and night to get from one town to another on the back roads. And I found this to be amazing. If the driver got sleepy, one or more of the players would be like, yep, I'm just going to drive this bus. So Negro League players played about 120 games per season. I mean, there is a range, about 80 to 120 per team, compared to white major league players playing 154 games a season. And Negro League players would mostly be barnstorming, which meant that they'd go anywhere and everywhere to really get a game in. Because remember, games equal ticket sales, equal money to the team. So sometimes they'd find and recruit new players in the towns that they were in, especially the small towns. But sometimes, though, they'd run into trouble. On one occasion, Buck Leonard, who's a Negro League legend, and his team couldn't play after they had traveled all day to get to this one little town. Because when they got to the ballpark, they found out that the Ku Klux Klan was marching there that night. So they got back on the bus and really rushed out of there. Because back then, when the Klan was marching, Black people went inside, turned out the lights, and pulled out a Bible, says, we are the ship. You know, a little bit more about traveling, especially traveling through the South, because according to Negro League accounts, players would have to travel several hundred miles without stopping because they couldn't find a place where they could eat along the way. Not because they didn't have money, not because they weren't starving, but most places, quote, didn't serve Negroes. And forget about using the restroom. You had to hold it or stop the bus and go in the woods. And also because there wasn't any fast food restaurants back then, sometimes players couldn't get much food before games so they play two games in a row which is called a double header on maybe two hot dogs and a soda total sometimes they would try and buy food in supermarkets but there would also be supermarket clerks there who didn't necessarily want to take their money so for those of you who are listening to all of what i just said and thinking how the south really was terrible let's also talk about the north because it was segregated there too Players couldn't get served in restaurants, so they'd get their food from the back doors of restaurants and eat on the bus. And the same thing happened with hotels. Many times players would get into a town after riding on a bus all day, only to spend several more hours riding around looking for a place to stay because suddenly all the hotels would be full. They had to sleep on the bus a lot or sometimes, you know, the YMCA or the local jail or even funeral homes. Or if they were lucky enough to find a Negro hotel, sometimes they'd have to sleep two to three players to a bed. They'd be praying also that the hotels were clean and didn't have bedbugs, because some definitely did. And sometimes local Black families would put them up. The manager would literally go and source these families during the game and go ask families to find families to house players for the night. And sometimes the local Black churches would feed these players. So that's a lot of work if you think about, you know, not only playing the game, but how are you going to sleep? Where are you going to sleep? How are you going to eat? How are you going to use the restroom, right? How long is that going to take, you know, to get rest, to get food, and then to go play another game? All right, so back to the games themselves. Sometimes they play on terrible fields, sometimes missing grass, sometimes patchy at best. And some that were literally in those small towns, like converted pastures where they'd be trying to avoid cow poop as they were playing, right? Because they literally set up the field that day. You know, many Negro League teams rented major league ballparks when the major league teams were away, which was great for the major league teams because they were making all this money right on the ballpark rental, even when they weren't using the stadium, but not for the Negro leaguers who after paying all that money still often had to get ready for their games down the street at the local YMCA or somewhere else. Because despite the white teams not being there, the Negro league teams were still not allowed to use the locker rooms. So I think given all of that, all of the conditions under which they played, all of the hard work that they had to go through to even get to play the game of baseball, I think it's only fair to say or to, you know, understand the reason why they did all of that is because they loved the game of baseball. They wanted to play the game of baseball. And if this was the only way that they were going to get to play the game of baseball, then that's what they were going to do.
0: That really, like I kept hearing all that you were saying and I could feel it. Like I really appreciate all of this context. And as you were speaking, I kept thinking about all the kids who grow up wanting to play sports, who love seeing what their bodies are capable of. And it it's really hard to think about how these young kids would have been treated if they'd grown up 100 years ago, 100 whatever years ago it was. And I think as another point of proof that separate but equal was not ever equal. I think you painted a really powerful picture. So we've talked about the formation of the league and some of the conditions that they played under. Let's get to like all I picture is these little baseball cards. Let's talk about the players themselves, right? Were there any superstar players who weren't well known outside of the Negro Leagues that we should know about? And how would they have stacked up against the major league baseball players?
1: Okay, so short answer is uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, but if we really went into all of the superstar players that weren't known outside of the Negro leagues, we'd take up our entire episode time and more talking about them. I think it should be noted though, that only in 2022 did Major League Baseball really allow Negro League stats to be included in like Hall of Fame discussions. Last year, Yeah. So, you know, this is still and if you look at baseball stats online now, they will include asterisks to say like we're still, you know, including Negro League stats in here. So it may not be complete. So, you know, suffice it to say there are so many really talented Negro League baseball players who, if included, would challenge, you know, included. And by included, I mean, in Hall of Fame stats and all of those because baseball is a sport of stat keeping to a ridiculous level, in my opinion. But those players would challenge some of the most famous major leaguers out there that we know about. So in the interest of time, here are my top three, right, that we should all know about. This first one you might have heard of, but Leroy Satchel Page was the Negro League's highest paid player and one of baseball's and I mean all of baseball's greatest pitchers. He had a slow windmill windup, which is like a huge windmill. You obviously can't see me if you're listening to this, but I'm moving my arm like a big windmill windup in a blazing fastball. He ended up with 2,100 wins, 300 shutouts. And a shutout is when the opposing team doesn't score a single run and 55 no hitters, which is what it sounds like. And 55, by the way, if you're an amazing pitcher, you get like a couple in your career, right? He played for more than 250 teams. He once struck out 24 out of a possible 27 batters in a game. Satchel Paige had 30 different pitches and named each one. And in comparison, a major league pitcher today with a lot of pitches might have six, and that's pretty rare. You know, he was in his 40s when he joined the major league Cleveland Indians in 1948, which is when he moved to the white major leagues and retired when he was, get this, 59 years old. That's unreal. Wow. Wow. Right. Okay. So that's Satchel Page. Josh Gibson, or the black Babe Ruth, although arguably he was and you know should be recognized as a better ball player than Babe Ruth, was a catcher for the Homestead Grays and the Pittsburgh Crawfords and was one of the greatest power hitters in baseball history. He hit 75 home runs in 1931, 69 in 1934, and led the Negro National Leagues in home runs 10 times. And if Negro League stats were fully included with Major League Baseball stats, he's the undisputed home run king as Barry Bonds hit 73 in one season. And his stats are really no longer counted by some due to the doping and issues. And so Barry Bonds' 73 is still the top of Major League Baseball Gibson also hit a home run about 580 feet, which is among the longest home runs ever hit at Yankee Stadium. And for those of you who watch, you know, Major League Baseball now, there's a lot of talk about Aaron Judge being a power hitter, right? He's not hitting 580 feet. Folks also say that one of his home run balls shattered a wooden seat in the stadium's grandstand. So you can imagine just how hard that ball was hit. All right. So that was Josh Gibson. Then there was James Cool Papa Bell, who was the fastest runner in the Negro Leagues. It's estimated that he stole around 175 bases in one season, and that's about 40 more than the current MLB single season record. Papa was so fast that he hit a ground ball and the ball hit him as he slid into second base. So just think about how fast he had to run. Yeah, right? During a 1936 pregame exhibition, Olympic track and field champion Jesse Owens refused to race Bell around the bases. And one of those folklore stories at Bell is that supposedly he could turn out the light in a room and be in bed before the room got dark, which I think is fascinating. All right. I'd also... You know, I know I said I would mention three, but I'd also like to mention one thing that separated the Negro Leagues from the major leagues. They let women play. It was about, can you play, not who you were. There were three women who played in the Negro Leagues, and all were superstars. Lyle Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, and Mamie Peanut Johnson, who got her nickname from an opposing player who said, while at bat... You ain't much bigger than a peanut. And Johnson, who was, yes, shorter at 5'3", promptly struck him out.
0: Yes, go. I like that. I really like that. And so those are names, honestly, I've never heard of. And I appreciate that you shared that. And I think it's great to hear just how much talent was in the Negro Leagues. And no wonder, really, that they drew such a big crowd. And it's also clear that today in 2023, we just have Major League Baseball, not the Negro Leagues, right? We have those two of those leagues that we you mentioned out of the three earlier. So clearly things have changed. How and when did like the Negro Leagues come to an end?
1: Right. So, well, you know, and to start this off, let's start with Jackie Robinson, because I'm fairly certain that most of us have heard of Jackie Robinson, who was the first Negro League player to integrate the Major Leagues back in 1947. I'm also guessing that a lot of people also assume that the Negro Leagues ended then, right? You integrate one player, boom, it's done. But they'd be wrong. Segregation and racism didn't just disappear with Jackie Robinson, just like racism didn't disappear when Obama became president. But integration did start with Robinson. Right. So let's talk about him for a second. Jackie Robinson starred in football, basketball, track and baseball at UCLA. So not at all athletic. And after World War II, joined the Kansas City Monarchs in the Negro Leagues in 1945. So keep in mind, this is still like nine years before, seven years before the Supreme Court's um, Brown decision. Right. About integration. Branch Rickey, president of the Brooklyn Dodgers, which are now the L.A. Dodgers, signed Robinson to the team. When he signed him, though, Ricky made Robinson promise not to fight back when racists lashed out. And if you read accounts by Jackie Robinson, you'll hear just how difficult that was because they definitely came for him. On April 15th, 1947, Robinson, then just 28 years old, played his first major league game and, in doing so, broke baseball's color barrier. He was also the National League Rookie of the Year in 1947 and named the MVP Most Valuable Player in 1949. His 197 stolen bases were the most in the major leagues from 1947 to 1956. In his 10 years with the Dodgers, the team won six pennants, which means they won their division, and they also won the World Series. Three other Negro League players joined Major League Baseball in that same year, in 1947, and soon more players followed. As teams integrated, Black fans started attending Major League games. Because of the decline in attendance, the Negro Leagues shut down after the 1963 season. It should be noted, however, and remember how Rube Foster was talking about how he wanted to have the Negro Leagues be as strong or stronger than the major leagues, that six of the first seven National League rookies of the year hailed from the Negro Leagues, which is again, you know, a testament to sort of Rube's
0: vision. That's amazing. I love that. You know, thank you for putting the integration of baseball into historical context there too, because it sounds also like With the disbanding of the Negro Leagues, Major League Baseball was growing in terms of non-white players, and I'm assuming by more than just Black players, right? So given all of that, what is the state of integration in baseball today?
1: Right. Well, and as you and I both know, since we recorded that episode together back in 2020, there is a definite lack of Black baseball players in the Major Leagues today. And I was you know, in researching this episode, I was looking at a study that was done back in 2007 and revisited again in 2017 about diversity in Major League Baseball. And in this study, you can see that from 1947, which was the start of integration, right, until about 1986, the percentage of Black baseball players, which I should note is was monitored separately from Afro-Latino players who come from the Caribbean, right, because that is a separate cultural difference, and distinction. right? So those two categories were split because sometimes people group them together, but they are distinct in certain ways. So again, from 1947 until about 1986, the percentage of Black baseball players rose fairly steadily to about 20% of the league. However, from 1986, it started going back down until 2016, which was the last year that the study captured where the percentage was 6.8%. Last year's World Series, and that's so that's 2022, was the first World Series in a very long time where there were no Black American baseball players on either team. So integration as a whole, especially when it comes to Latinx and Asian players in Major League Baseball, is doing fairly well. Those numbers have sort of steadily risen over time. But integration when it comes to Black baseball players is lacking. And if you want a deeper dive into why, well, you know, that earlier episode that I referenced is a great longer look at this specific question. But to, you know, to summarize, especially right now in, you know, close to the start of 2023, I'll briefly say representation matters as if you don't see yourself in the sport and especially at the highest levels of the sport, because right now I can only think of one current black major league baseball player who is probably hall of fame bound and that's Mookie Betts, then If you don't see yourself there, why would you want to play that sport? And also, there is still a huge barrier to entry in terms of money when it comes to baseball. And because you need to be playing travel baseball, not just your local Little League baseball, in order to even get on a Major League Baseball scout's radar, right, to get to the college level, to get to the scouting, that is a huge financial outlay and not one that families, especially those without generational wealth because of systemic racism, can afford to pay.
0: Again, the context is so important, and I really appreciate that. It is disheartening to hear. And I remember that episode that you're referencing. We'll link to that in our show notes, so check that out if you want to hear it. But especially if you think about how much talent was in the Negro Leagues and how much talent and really competition we may be missing out on now because of the lack of Black Major League Baseball players, I think it's important for us to all pay attention to that. I know you mentioned at the start of the episode that you were talking to your kids' elementary school about the Negro Leagues. And I think what makes parents nervous about having these conversations is the questions, right? I think parents are really like caught up in not knowing all of the answers. And so how can you even start these conversations? I think people want to just avoid it rather than opening ourselves up to having to say, I don't know. So I would love to ask you to give our parents any more information as possible to feel like they're armed and ready to, to dive into this. What are some of the questions that you have been asked by these kids and how do you answer them?
1: So I love this question and this framing because I totally agree, right? And I will say that some of the questions that I've received are surprising and some were not, right? Some were around definitions of words. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, why the Negro Leagues were called the Negro Leagues, but why we refer to Black people now as Black or African-American, Also the question of what is segregation came up, you know, and and how do we talk about segregation and dividing people based on the color of their skin, you know, and keeping them separate for a whole host of things. And we went into some examples of that, you know, somewhere around race, right? Like for example, that skin color question, earlier of how did they divide players, right, into Negro Leagues and Major League Baseball. And another kid who was sitting right next to this kid who asked the question jumped in to note that white players were white and black players were black, which was super helpful. But it was also like a very, you know, it was very matter of fact. There was no judgment or feeling really based on that. And I think that's what's so important to remember is kids are asking because they're curious, right? They want to know, and they're not judging you on your answer. They're just trying to get the information so they can make sense of it. And I think when you take it off of you and onto them, that provides sort of a different framework entirely. Um, You know, some questions were around how the teams were run. For example, why did the Negro Leagues And why did those teams in the Negro Leagues have to play so many games? And we talked about how, you know, unlike major league teams who had sponsors, often corporate sponsors, right, and funding, Negro League teams were their own businesses. So they were solely responsible for all the money that they needed to, like, rent stadiums, for example. And several kids really just noted it was less of a question, more of a comment. How unfair The treatment was of the Negro League players. And we stopped to acknowledge that. And I think that's really important too, because kids have, and we've talked about this so many times, right, this really innate sense of fairness and justice. And they understand that so well without the judgment that adults put on it, you know, based on how we identify that I I think is so important.
0: I agree with you. And I just want to emphasize that point about fairness, because I think as a parent, one of the most frustrating whines you can hear from a kid is like, well, that's not fair. And then if you teach kids history like this and they see what fair and unfair actually can be, how dramatic that difference can actually be out there for people, for for situations that they have zero control over, it really helps your kid innately understand Uh, and calibrate their, their sort of social radar differently and use phrases like that's not fair a lot less and have a lot more perspective on their own lives.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. And I also want to address something because I feel like this comes up a lot with white parents that, you know, my kid is going to be made to feel a way, right? When we talk about things like racism and segregation. And so I'm sitting in a class and, you know, let's take the third grade class, right? Because I have a son in that class who is black, right? And there are a lot of white kids in that class too and also Asian kids. And there was one other black kid in that class because it was the combined third grades. But at no point was everyone looking at my son because he's black or the other black child. At no point was there any white child who was expressing anything besides curiosity around the answers. And I think that again, we get hung up on what we put our own feelings, right? As parents and our fears. And so what we're, you know, just projecting onto our kids. I think that, however, if I was the teacher and was continually gesturing to my son as the black child, right? Then then I'm creating this feeling, right? Which is different than the feeling I wanted to create. So as teachers, as parents, we have a lot of control over how this discussion goes, right? And I think the more open we are, the more willing we are to make mistakes. Like I definitely said, I don't know. In those conversations, I think the more that we can show our kids that these are conversations that we should be having, right? And we're not going to be perfect with them. So I just wanted to throw that in there as well. And by the time this recording comes out, I'll have spoken, you know, throughout this sort of classroom odyssey of the Negro Leagues to ages ranging from kindergarten to fifth grade. But some of these resources, including the short films put out this year by Major League Baseball about the Negro Leagues and certain moments in time regarding the Negro Leagues, This book that we were talking about, the We Are the Ship book, and some specific resources I use for the upper elementary students would totally work for middle schoolers as well. So please reach out to us at hello at Dear White Women com, If you want to know more about these for older kids, including high school students, the Negro League Baseball Museum online has a lot of different discussion questions and resources as well to really encourage critical thinking around many parts of the Negro Leagues and how we carry that forward into baseball and life, right? And society today, you know, and I just want to mention this because regardless of the age of students, I always end with some version of what I'm going to say next. Today we talked a lot about Negro League baseball and baseball in general. And I thank you so much for your willingness to jump in and ask questions and be such great listeners. You know, this wasn't something I learned about in school, so I hope that in learning this together today, you think about not only what a cool sport baseball is, um and how, but also how as we think about baseball throughout history, right, throughout time, throughout our knowledge of it, but also when we talk about the start of baseball, We recognize that Black history and the Negro Leagues is part of our collective, right, our joint American history and baseball history, because it's so important to see how everything in our world is connected. And you know what? As I'm saying this to you now, Sarah, and to our listeners, that is, I think, not just a lesson for our kids, right, but for ourselves as well.
0: You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.